You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. There must have been something that Richard Nixon admired about Woodrow Wilson because he took his desk. He had used the Wilson desk as vice president in his EOB office next to the White House. Wilson had said, men of ordinary physique and discretion cannot be presidents and live if the strain cannot be relieved. It's not shocking that Richard Nixon felt commonality. Wilson was the symbol of America in the world. And for somebody Nixon's age, it was the symbol of an America that didn't shrink from the world, a powerful one. The funny thing is that as a White House note indicates, later research indicated that the desk had not been used by Woodrow Wilson. It was the desk of Henry Wilson, VP under Ulysses Grant. Immaterial if he knew the fact, he and his desk would upend foreign policy with the cards that he had been dealt as president, a close election, a divided country, an unpopular war, a peace process, an uneasy one, trying to end that war. He had plans, and he had a Secretary of State, William Rogers, to execute those plans as normal in a presidency, but... Nixon, by now, schooled, you don't use the actual rank, so he found his man in Henry Kissinger, not really of Washington, but of Harvard. No, they aren't interested in who did what to whom. Kissinger was advising Nelson Rockefeller in the primaries called Nixon the most dangerous man in America. No matter for Nixon. He later started advising Nixon and the State Department under Lyndon Johnson at the same time. But as Nixon began winning, Nixon too, he also had a cadre of journalist contacts. Nixon could use them. Wilson had his Colonel House. Nixon had his Kissinger. Vietnam's raging in 1968. 500,000 soldiers are there. 30,000 have died by the time Nixon takes office. We can now put that in more perspective. You know? It's enough to reach communities all over America, those deaths. Most Americans want it stopped. At the point he takes the presidency, one of Nixon's advisors is already going to say, the American people had already made the determination. Back to, we'll, we'll get to that later. Lyndon Johnson stops the bombing in North Vietnam right at the tail end of the 1968 election to get the peace talks going. He doesn't think it's an election ploy, Lyndon Johnson. He thinks he's just following the timing of events and what they took. They're squashed when the South Vietnamese won't go along. We know now that Anna Chenault, directed by John Mitchell of the Nixon campaign, helped persuade South Vietnamese senators to stall. It's also true that the South Vietnamese may not have needed a reason to stall. Perhaps Chanel gave them a little extra confidence about who was coming to the presidency next. Perhaps they're going to do what they're going to do. But we know that happened. So it's not just totally Nixon taking over blind. He's actually determined what's on his plate as president of it. And that should be part of always of the history and always is here when we talk about these events. It's said that Nixon 
was won the 68 election claiming to have a secret plan. And, you know, I got to tell you, this is one of these things I learned during this podcast, just like I hope you do. All right. We're we're both learning together a bit. Initially, I was going to write this line. I had one line. Nixon had a secret plan because it said so much, but he didn't exactly. He didn't exactly. And the Nixon Foundation's right to point out that he never says these words. Rockefeller said it of Nixon that he had a secret plan and wouldn't reveal it. Nixon did say his administration, though, would end the war and win the peace. So you could infer that implies one has a plan. If they're running for president and saying they're going to end the war and win the peace, they must know how to do it. He tells a reporter who asks him about a secret plan, if I had it, I'd give it to Johnson. So he's fairly upfront about it. The other thing to deal with this secret plan thing is that he does speak to editors off the record during the 68 campaign and tells him basically his secret plan. He will meet with the Soviets. He will meet with the Chinese to try to leverage the Vietnamese. And he will Vietnamize the war, un-Americanize the war, you could say, pull American troops out and have South Vietnamese fight for their own country. It's all off the record. That doesn't get quoted, but it could be where you got the whole secret plan. Nixon wins that 68 election. He gets his chance, takes over from Johnson. Johnson is allowed to continue the peace process as long as he can. In the transition period, Nixon doesn't interfere. The Democrats' last days go nowhere. All they can agree on between the South Vietnamese and the North Vietnamese and the United States is the table that they're going to to meet uh, around in the Paris Peace Conference. Now, here's another little, it's a little bit of a, of a canard, right? Um, because the table thing, because it really is meaningful. In other words, the North Vietnamese want the North Vietnamese government and the provisional government, Viet Cong government, that they believe exists in South Vietnam at the current time. South Vietnam and North Vietnam are fighting. South Vietnam does not have control over all of its territory. There are pockets that are controlled by Viet Cong, and there is fighting all the time and guerrilla attacks all the time everywhere. So that table has to do with that, where people are going to sit. And Avril Harriman basically works out a compromise that the, you know, they'll just be a standard two tables facing each other. And, you know, we won't acknowledge the North Vietnamese, but they can come sit with you with this kind of thing. And that at least stops the peace accords from being thrown off. But there really isn't significant movement. As always, I want to thank you for listening to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. A couple things I want to note. You know, if you're listening, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Podcast Addict, um, wherever you listen to podcasts. Just hit the subscribe or follow, whatever the app is calling it. Please do that function. I could use reviews of the program. If you like this program, please tell other people about it. And the best place to do it, where it really helps the most, I would say, are three places. Let's say a review on podcast addict uh, just because i'm getting a good percentage from there and reviews on apple podcasts otherwise i'd say overcast and stitcher or two others where i could use it just give us a review if you like the program please um helps out what we're doing here is talking about the paris peace accords because i did an episode about the saigon situation in 1975 
But this is how the peace deal was etched, and it leads to those events. And I think it's important in understanding the Afghanistan, just like it's important to understand the previous history with the negotiations with the Taliban and things like that to understand the Afghanistan situation now. I did a podcast in 2006, How Do You End a War? And I talked about it. Uh, I'm in going into more detail, as I'm prone to do in these um, these days. You know, I've done this podcast for 15 years, and I'm always finding, well, you look at one thread and you pull it and you need more information. So there's a real story here about the Paris Peace Accords that isn't just the easiest thing in the world. Um and there's some quick generalizations that maybe I even made. I think I basically got it right in the 2006 cast, but there's a couple of generalizations in it that could be clarified more. Senator Dirksen, Mr. Chief Justice, Mr. Vice President, President Johnson, Vice President Humphrey, my fellow Americans, and my fellow citizens of the world community. I ask you to share with me today the majesty of this moment. In the orderly transfer of power, we celebrate the unity that keeps us free. Upon taking office, Nixon moves immediately, tells Ho Chi Minh, alive, for a few more months into 69, Nixon's first year, that he is interested in serious talks with the North Vietnamese, but insists he wants an honorable peace. And he defines what that means. Peace with honor means that South Vietnam must exist. It must be autonomous. Kissinger writes the same in Foreign Affairs. He asks critics of the new administration to give us time. He also gives a prescient warning, unilateral withdrawal from Vietnam, just the U.S. leaving. Or, this is key, a settlement that unintentionally amounts to unilateral withdrawal, just the U.S. leaving, will lead. You get the sense there that there's hope of ending the war soon, new president, less baggage, the table resolved, Paris talks begin five days into Nixon's first term, but 20 days later, the Viet Cong attack, 110 targets in South Vietnam. And Nixon threatens to resume bombing. Well, the peace talks are going nowhere. He's doing something else. Nixon is reducing the troops in Vietnam, the amount of troops. It's the first time this has happened. U.S. troops in Vietnam peak at 530,000 in April 1969, really the result of Lyndon Johnson's policies. Nixon will pull 25,000 out in July 69, his first year, 35,000 out in September, 115,000 total out his first year as president. It's an achievement, objectively. You know, it's something in doing this podcast. I'm going to point out a couple of things that really should be achievements for Nixon. It's hard with Nixon because of all the negatives. But if any other president did this, you know, it, it's a political risk for him to be pulling these troops out. Kissinger's always worried that every time he's pulling troops out, the enemy is going to look at that difference in force and take advantage in those points. But there's a few reasons we don't really consider Nixon the great war ender, and that's because, A, you have to consider American opinion was well ahead of even these steps Nixon were taking. If he pulls out 150, they want 500,000 out. Peace accords as well as um, discussions take a long time, much longer than Americans expect, so they're not going to 
grade him too well on that. And then see, Nixon actually escalates, as we'll discuss, while he's removing troops. But yes, uh, opinion is against. There's 250,000 protesters in his first year in Washington, D.C. Life magazine, you know, in a big protest in Washington, D.C. Life magazine prints the 242 Americans killed in one week on the front page of its magazine, a visceral reminder of this cost. 300 Harvard students take over the Harvard administration building and kick the administration out in sit-ins that will be mirrored across the country. This is all happening as Nixon's taking office. Peace accords are delayed. They're dragged. Ho Chi Minh rejects Nixon's first offer. And that letter that Nixon writes to Ho Chi Minh, Ho Chi Minh rejects it. Nixon wants to escalate. He wants to do something after seeing no movement in his early first term, but he can't do it in public. LBJ had committed not to bomb North Vietnam when he ended the bombing. Nixon doesn't want to break LBJ's promise, not yet. But he wants to do something about supply lines that are causing South Vietnam to be attacked. Hanoi says America must go for them to stop attacking. Nixon won't do that. Hanoi says that they want the South Vietnamese President Thu out of office. He, while maybe is not the strongest leader ever, he has enough resonance, it appears, with people there that he's the symbol of the country. And if he's gone, I think the North Vietnamese think they can grab an opportunity. They want him out. Nixon won't sell out Thu. He won't sell out South Vietnam. That's not an honorable peace. Not everyone agrees. A Vermont senator insists, just withdraw and declare victory. It's an idea that catches on across America, particularly in your more Republican circles. Like, don't admit the war was wrong, just withdraw and declare that you won. Nixon talks to Charles de Gaulle in France in an early trip. De Gaulle's country is hosting those peace talks. He's just pulled Algeria out of France, and France was there for a 100 years. There's terrible opposition to it. He's almost assassinated, de Gaulle is. He asked Nixon... Why not just get out of Vietnam? You get nothing out of it. And Nixon says, well, we'll weaken America. If we do that, we'll weaken our position with the Soviets. De Gaulle says, it'll be exactly the opposite. You're going to weaken your position if you stay in Vietnam. He, he knows the French experience. The entire Vietnam comes from the experience of French Indochina. When the French left, the country's partitioned, North and South Vietnam, North Vietnam, a communist country, South Vietnam, a republic, if sometimes corrupt country, South supported by the United States, the North supported by the Soviet Union and communist China. We eventually sent troops into the South to support that. This comes out of the French experience, and that's not a good one. Nixon won't do what de Gaulle is saying. He won't just pull troops out of Vietnam. He won't just withdraw from Vietnam. Rather than submitting a laundry list of various proposals, uh, we have laid down those things which we believe uh, the other side should agree to and can agree to. His first press conference, he tries to negotiate by TV. He's not going to go meet with the North Vietnamese right now. Uh, the restoration of the militarized zone as set forth in the uh, Geneva Conference of 1954. Uh, mutual withdrawal, guaranteed withdrawal of forces by both sides, uh, the exchange of prisoners. Uh, all of these 
are matters that we think can be precisely considered and on which progress can be made. A mutual withdrawal from South Vietnam, he says. He offers U.S. withdraws, so do the North Vietnamese, and a prisoner of war exchange. Hanoi rejects this. At this early juncture, Nixon doesn't appear surprised by it. It's a negotiation. Nixon is familiar with this. He's got some CIA info possibly reliable that Hanoi knows Nixon is under less pressure than Lyndon Johnson was. Uh, now, where we go from here uh, depends upon what the other side offers in turn. He comes up with something else. He works out with Rogers and Kissinger and others the madman play. Let him know I'm a madman. I'll do anything. After all, Nixon had a reputation of exposing domestic communists in the 50s, of attacking red candidates, of being a hardline anti-communist against the spread of communism in the world. He is a rep. He tells his staff, let the North Vietnamese, let the Soviets, let the Bulgarians, whomever you talk to, that are going to relay a message, perhaps, to them, that this guy is a madman. Uh, he's unpredictable, Nixon. He could do anything. Tell him... His hand's on the button. Say that. This policy is not really effective. Ho Chi Minh has beaten the French. They're used to fights, threats, intimidation attempts. Very little is obtained from this type of strategy. As 69 moves forward, North Vietnam attacks the center of South Vietnam using Cambodia as a vehicle. Nixon bombs North Vietnamese troops on the Vietnam side of the border in response. And he wants to do more. He wants to attack the supply lines themselves, but they're in another country. What can he do? Cambodia is a sovereign nation. Prince Sihanouk is head of state. He's a little too comfortable with China and the Soviet Union, but he also talks with the U.S. He is supporting the arms traffic going through his country. Nixon looks, can we, can we bomb his country anyway? Well, Rogers and others say, you're going to stir up domestic trouble. Even more protests than you have now if you do that. Can we bribe him? They ask the CIA. The CIA figures he's making more money on the arms traffic than you're ever going to be able to bribe him for. Shelve it for the moment. Nixon's next tact is to work with the Russians, really, at this time, we'd say the Soviets. Can't use those terms interchangeably, except remember that the capital is always Moscow and the center of gravity there. And it was very common in American times that we're talking about to say the Russians, the Soviets. Ask Kissinger to meet with uh, Dobrynin, the ambassador, to link Vietnam to what the Soviets want, arms control. There's limited receptiveness to this. Also, Kissinger doesn't like the idea, and he's dragging his feet a bit. Nixon doesn't think that the Russians really have control over Hanoi, which he's probably right on. Um, Nixon never agrees to that, never agrees on this. Nixon decides on a way around Cambodia, secret bombing that the U.S. will not announce. Will bomb, but not let anybody know about it. Usually, if America does something, you know, it's broadcasted in all the newspapers, right? So he's just going to do a lot of bombing, but not tell anyone about it. They get the prince of Cambodia, who's already having trouble with rebels in his country, to kind of agree. He doesn't need to be bribed, just kind of talking with the U.S. And... You know, he can't stop the armed traffickers, but he's also going to play nice with the U.S. Operation Breakfast begins. B-52s bombing Cambodia supply lines. The chiefs tell Nixon it's a success. They're especially proud of the secondary fires it causes. 
So to some degree, Nixon calls this one right, operationally speaking, because the Cambodians and the North Vietnamese, unlike what Rogers warned them, don't talk. They don't let anybody know. To do so would mean they'd have to reveal their own border activity and plans and not look so good in U.S. and world opinion. Or should I let them have it again, Nixon says. Crack the hell out of them. When Moscow rejects linkage or fails to embrace it, Nixon indeed launches more bombing raids. Saw in the first year of his presidency. Operation Lunch. 90 BF-2s hitting Cambodia and causing 150 incendiary explosions on their supply lines. The New York Times get winds of these attacks. The White House denies. They go with a story even on their front page, but it's unconfirmed, not picked up by other media. Nixon launches four more attacks into Cambodia, bombing attacks, snack, dinner, dessert, and supper. The whole thing is called Operation Menu. Someone at the Pentagon is hungry, or maybe it's just Nixon. The 1969 raids officially are secret for four years. That's how Nixon's first year goes. No quick peace, and I don't know if he expected it. I think maybe he did. Maybe Kissinger did. I don't think he's tremendously disappointed in that first year. I think, uh, you know, we can... I'm going to talk about this a bit in this this cast, and it came out during this research. I'm just reminded of it, that we always got to look at the kind of the two Nixons as a Nixon as president, and then the fact that we have all this personal communications of them that we don't have with other presidents. You know, do we hear every minute of Barack Obama in the office or every minute of Bill Clinton and the frustrations that they all felt are reading too much sometimes? I think Nixon also is an experienced negotiator and probably looks at this first year as, oh, well, you know. But there is one factor to consider. 1970 brings something else. His approval rating is dropping. It was in his 60s in his first year, and presidents then really did earn higher ratings. So Nixon coming in with just a minority of the popular vote, which has now happened in a lot of other presidential elections, you know, it happened then because it was a three-way election, you know, it doesn't have the confidence of everybody. So he's been in his 60s the first year. Uh, pretty good considering Vietnam's going on. Now it's in the 50s. By March 1970, 53%, this is Gallup, approve of the job he is doing. The public is tired of Vietnam and wants it wrapped up. This may not be completely fair on Nixon and their desire to do this right now. He can't just snap his fingers and, and do things like this. But 48% approve of his Vietnam policy. So that's even lower than his approval rating by March 1970. The administration is eager to push back on criticisms as the stuff of hippies and hysterics. But even friendlies within the administration, Al Haig warns, you know, can't ignore the war, anti-war group. You can't keep prosecuting the war if the ones prosecuting the war are sent home by voters. And Nixon knows this. It's on their radar. And so it's the clock. It's year two of the second term. Nixon and Kissinger think alike. New playbooks. Don't follow conventions. They are suspicious of each other. Nixon complains about them to Haldeman all the time. The other aides leak stories about him. Keep a watch on him. They fear that Haldeman is going to leak stories about the administration, and they fear his knack for self-promotion. Kissinger just as much. He's not in a kind of permanent or not a cabinet job, right? That's William Rogers. So he gets a little jealous when, I don't know if that's the right word, but sort of works when uh, Nixon discusses anything with Rogers. What did he say? What did he say? What does he do? He wants one-on-one with Nixon. You know, 
Kissinger, in effect, is a national security advisor. Could be replaced any time. Bring in another advisor. Don't even have to talk to Congress about it. Or more importantly, as things happen in the White House, secretly canceled. So he, these are the factors. Um, the reality is Secretary of State Rogers in the Nixon administration, Nixon has made him all but a figurehead. He's the guy that meets with Japan. Nixon tells the Soviets to deal with Henry, not with Rogers. That's no problem for the Soviets. They are used to that. But Nixon's got a plan for 1970 and announces it on TV. And I think he feels pretty good about this. It's Vietnamization. The South Vietnamese will pick up the war so the U.S. can withdraw with honor. In addition, Nixon secretly bombs Laos, another supply center for the North Vietnamese attacks. He also secretly sends an envoy to meet with the North Vietnamese. This is Vernon Walters, and it sets up actions that will happen in Paris. May 2nd, 1970, Nixon's on the phone with uh, his chief of staff, Haldeman. Good numbers. His speech just got 65% approval in a poll. Only 35% disagreed. He tells Haldeman, let everybody go home. Get some rest. No, Haldeman said, not when we're just getting things rolling. I'll let up on them later. Smart man, since this was a Friday, and Nixon didn't seem to meet in any way. The president watched Patton on Saturday night, and after watching that movie, he came in on a Sunday. We need bold moves, imaginative moves. None of the searching around. Congressmen really put the screws in them. Some of them are cowards, sticking the knife in U.S. troops, giving aid and comfort to the enemy. Use that phrase. Hit him in the gut. He's also constantly going after leaks within the administration. Who's talking to the New York Times? And something else happens, and no one knows it. Kissinger goes to Paris. The North Vietnamese delegation is still there. Peace accords are delayed, but they're not over. Leda To, a member of the Politburo, a significant revolutionary, is there leading the delegation. Now, that's important because that means the North Vietnamese are taking it seriously. This is a guy who spent time in French prisons, who was a big part of the revolutionary movement. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And he meets with them. Kissinger describes the room with this dingy carpet and meeting of these people. They're just insistent on their policies. They're used to negotiations. They're used to conflict. His aide, Winston Lord, says there was really very little change. Kissinger wires Nixon that we're still very far apart. These meetings take on a little interesting nature and get close to being caught, but they come up with a clever ruse. 
So, and this is actually the next year when there'll be more of these meetings. Late October is in Paris. Kissinger visits Paris. And the press is upset with Kissinger because it's like, here's the North Vietnamese counterparts and you're not even meeting. You're in the same city. And then they uh, see Kissinger in a Paris cafe with this lovely blonde haired woman who used to work for ABC News. And, you know, it's really there's this kind of low level outrage among the press that they're not meeting. Well, secretly, what has happened is Kissinger has slipped out the back door of his residence. His other aides are, as far as the press is concerned, visiting the Eiffel Tower. Kissinger actually gets in a car, picks those aides up after they've like you know, convince the press that they're touring the Eiffel Tower enough, brings them to the safe house where the North Vietnamese are, and they meet. The press was pretty mad at us, Winston Lord says. There's more meetings to the second year of Nixon's term with varying results. Sometimes, as Winston Lord describes it, Lee Duck To has a headache. Other times, he seems to open up and talk more. We knew when he had a headache, we weren't going to get much. But in reality, it always seems to be the same position. They want the South Vietnamese President Thu to go. They want unilateral withdrawal of United States troops, and they want a coalition government in South Vietnam. Their friendly, provisional communist government, the Viet Cong, and the South Vietnamese, a coalition government. That's their proposal. Winston Lord notes they really don't move much off this, even as we keep having these secret meetings. In April 1970, Nixon makes the decision to make his invasion, bombing, and ground invasion of Cambodia public. It is immediately followed by the shootings in Kent State and an enormous protest in Washington, D.C., the greatest out, the greatest that they've seen since the Vietnam War started. 400,000 people, students from all over schools where there had been sit-ins and other protests where... Classes and sports have been canceled, show up in Washington, D.C. Haldeman says now, Nixon's sleep, very disturbed. When Nixon announces the invasion of Cambodia, he concedes on two points as well. Hanoi doesn't have to withdraw to restart the talks. We just need a ceasefire. And Nixon proposes a new peace conference, uh, perhaps led by the U.K. and Russia, as well as the U.S. and North Vietnam. They go nowhere. They try, but they can't get the Soviets to commit to a summit with the United States. North Vietnam strings along more. And Nixon, as an old college football fan, probably knows how to read a clock. 1970, it's effectively two years. He does badly in the midterms of 1970. This is not a good sign. There's a number of Democratic presidential candidates vying to replace him. By 1971, his approval slips below 50% for the first time, and disapproval of Vietnam policy above 61%. They never really moved, Winston Lord said. Overall, there was little cooperation or movement over any of this time. So much of it, it might have been internalized. We thought we heard something different in what they were saying. Reality was, Lord said, they seemed to just be listening to us to see if we were coming any closer to their position. The Vietnam War effort suffers a blow when Lieutenant William Calley is convicted of premeditated murder in a military court for the events in the village of My Lai. Premeditated murder. Nixon allows him to serve his sentence in barracks while awaiting appeal. He'll be pardoned eventually. Still, it's just one more blow, morally, 
against the war effort. The North Vietnamese seemed to know that domestic approvals are eroding in the United States. The North Vietnamese asked Congress now to set a withdrawal date. They're going over Nixon's head. Nixon should be a peacemaker, but the public is so far ahead of him, as we already said, and more in 1971 than they had been in 1969. Protests are frequent and large. A young veteran appears before Congress and asks. He's a veteran, not some hippie protester, and he asks, how do you ask a man to be the last to die for a mistake? Even President Nixon thinks, watching it, that John Kerry is a very effective speaker on TV. He tries to counteract it. He tries to meet with some students. It goes nowhere. He curses them to Haldeman, the jackasses. Why do I have to meet with them? Now Congress acts, taking several votes on withdrawal from Vietnam. snap of a drum and 1971 is an interesting year for music you see ceilings bursting it's almost like the new decade is here the snap of the drum and wake up maggie i faces singer rod stewart with that song and that piercing mandolin so different marvin gay switches up writes his own songs and writes songs about the environment race war and peace He doesn't beat on a drum or scream war. It's just the question, what's going on? Carol King's tapestry. It's too late, baby, now. It's too late. Though we really did try to make it. Different perspectives than what we've been hearing on records. The Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards misses his son Marlon. And he turns it into a line. Wild horses couldn't drag me away. Mick Jagger rewrites it. The band turns it into a hit. At 8512 Santa Monica Boulevard, Jim Morrison and Ray Manzarek and The Doors record an album in six days. They get help from Elvis's basement. Morrison is an Elvis fan and a crooner, and he sings Mr. Mojo Rising in the bathroom. He speaks it. He hurls it. Mojo Rising. He does it in the bathroom doorway because their studio isn't a real studio. It's a makeshift one. doesn't have a vocal booth. Rising, 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 rising. He'll die, we think, three months later. A new approach in Vietnam is on the table as 1971 opened. Vietnamization, announced last year, is going to be put to a test in attacking the supply lines that are feeding attacks on South Vietnam. But there's an issue. If you want the supply lines, you got to go into other countries. That's what the North Vietnamese are doing. They're going around the demilitarized zone and going through Laos, through Cambodia. By the time you're getting to 1971, something's happened in Cambodia. The prince has been overthrown, probably with U.S. help. And that government, that new government, will not allow North Vietnamese in. In fact, the whole government, the revolution is founded on not cooperating with the North Vietnamese. Cambodia is closed. Now they've got Laos. They've still got Laos. Laos is an old supply route going all the way into the 60s, so it's a problem. By congressional amendment, U.S. troops cannot operate in Laos. So the South Vietnamese army will. 
This is a test of the new system. It's really an attempt to do two things. Take out that supply line and shift the momentum. Potentially, potentially for South Vietnam not to be on defense, but to be on the attack and to boost the morale of the ARVN, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, the Army of South Vietnam. The operation is called Lam Som 719, and it begins with 21,000 troops, tanks, and men pouring in, making progress at first, with U.S. Army helicopters to provide support. That was the loophole in the congressional law that you could provide air support and the support personnel needed so they can keep support and logistics on the Vietnam border and then also send in copters and rangers to help. Now, the goal is to take a city of Chapone, which is known to be a city in Laos that is a known supply depot for the North Vietnamese. And to take it, they're going to take, and this is kind of funny for somebody coming from Jersey, probably a thousand other states, a road called Route 9 through Laos to get there. It's formidable terrain all around, though. And uh, something else is going on. North Vietnam has spies in South Vietnam. In fact, the president himself, one of his assistants, is a spy. They know this operation is hit. They know that they're going to be attacked, buttress up with reinforcements. The first wave of B-52 bombers comes to clear the area around Laos. Troops are gone. They then reappear. The U.S. knows that they know because they intercept a radio uh, broadcast of North Vietnam that says, The enemy may strike at our cargo system. Prepare to be mobilized and hit the enemy hard. Be vigilant. Still, one thing that North Vietnam doesn't have as much of, at least in, in any meaningful way, is helicopter support. And that's going to be the key to this operation. Plus a lot of tanks. They can't be matched by the enemy. And they start making progress. But about 20 kilometers kilometers inside Laos, it bogs down. Roads are bad. This Route 9 is not, turns out, not a route in any condition at all. It really should have been known better. There's miscommunication, lack of interpreters between the English and the Vietnamese. It turns out to go much farther. Only tanks and tractor vehicles can make it. They can't supply with motorized vehicles vehicles. So helicopters need to perform the supply. But when they try to reach the LV, their landing zones, they're taking fire. One pilot says uh, it's traumatic event, life-changing event for every pilot. Every helicopter that goes in is getting hit. Uh, one, um, It's like the terrain is moving like a carpet, but there are hundreds of troops under the trees. And as the helicopters have to fly in low, they're attacking those copters with whatever they have, rounds of small arms fire, but close enough and in volume enough to take some helicopters down. Six days in, there are questions even in Washington, D.C. Is this operation stalled? No, says Defense Secretary Melvin Lard. It's just a pause of LAMSOM 719. There's going to be like 174 copters shot down during this operation. Some are not shot down all at once, but they're damaged by so many rounds. 215 U.S. personnel killed in this operation. It's, it's pretty rough. I can only get into generalizations. I'm not a military history podcast. I would love to take some time. I probably could, you know, and give you a whole look at Lam Sum 719. But I will just, for the scope of what we're talking about here, the piece 
Accords. Let me just refer you to the Jocko podcast. They have a great interview with a helicopter pilot or on um, YouTube. Vietnam in HD has a Lamsom 719 episode. And there's numerous soldiers who have been interviewed from the operation. But by early March, Hanoi is able to put 36,000 troops and some Soviet-made tanks in a counteroffensive. They are doing serious damage to the army of the Republic of Vietnam and to the supporting copters and equipment. What eventually happens is the South Vietnam take that city of Japone, that at this point, it's a city that's not of importance really logistically. We think it's abandoned by the North Vietnamese anyway. But by taking it, reaching it, it's kind of a, it allows Thu to withdraw troops. They retreat in April after some a desperate fighting retreat. Now get to South Vietnam. South Vietnamese army may have lost as many as 4,000 people. But how it's reported in the U.S. Nixon reports on TV, tonight I can report that Vietnamization has worked. By June 1971, Nixon is banging on the Woodrow Wilson desk, audible to Kissinger and Haldeman who are in the Oval. If we can't get a breakthrough, it startled both of them. If we can't get the Soviets, the Chinese, both have been contacted and thus far aren't agreeing they should help with America's problem. I'm going to play the whole card, take out the dikes, level the country. Both men knew better. Nixon was letting off some steam. He wasn't about to attack the civilian population of North Vietnam, the international criticism that would come. It would put them in a worse position in the peace accords, and he knew it. Still, he was looking for that something. June 1971, Congress acts. Congress has had enough. The Hatfield Amendment passes. Hatfield, Mark Hatfield, is the majority leader of the Senate. He's no small individual, senator from Oregon. Calls for Vietnam withdrawal in nine months. It passes 57 to 42. This is not a small margin. Nixon is livid. It calls Hatfield. We've made breakthroughs in our negotiations, he says. It's all ruined now. It was not a truthful statement. There wasn't significant breakthroughs. But Nixon tells Hatfield, you are forcing me to bomb the hell out of them now. July 71, North Vietnam meets Kissinger again. This time they make an interesting suggestion. Just take Thu out in a covert operation. It's almost like, you guys are good at that, right? They know the U.S. has done it before. Well, with Thu's brother, there was pretty clear evidence that the United States approved of a, of a plan to overthrow the brother. The North Vietnamese ask Henry Kissinger back. Good news, Nixon thinks. He even tells Henry Kissinger, tell reporters who ask about Vietnam to say, Vietnam is finished. On to bigger things. Russia and China. The administration at this point in July 15th, 1971, announces that Nixon will be visiting China and that negotiations have been going on between the U.S. and the People's Republic of China. Just this announcement doesn't, by the way, have an immediate impact on Nixon's approval rating. That's not going to happen until the actual visit happens and how it's executed. Because I think there's still some disbelief, even though the shock about the announcement. And then there is a little bit of eroding of support on the right of American politics, because at least initially, because of this announcement. North Vietnamese asked Henry Kissinger back for several meetings in 1921. In one of them, Henry arrives with a six-point plan, but has little occasion to use it. The North Vietnamese do not move too much, aren't interested. The difference 
between Henry Kissinger's plan that he has now has in the later part of 1971 and previous offers is that he will now settle for North Vietnamese troops not leaving the country. And this is a very important distinction to the whole thing, to the whole thing that where we're going to get to the end point. But this doesn't cause a thaw at all right now. Um, his six-point plan is still dead on arrival. The North Vietnamese do make an interesting suggestion. They say in some of the meetings, you don't have to get rid of President Thu, just leave it to South Vietnam. That's a small concession. You don't have to get rid of him. You can, we can have an election in South Vietnam. It's, it's a move away a bit from the coalition government position. But America is not going to abandon Thu. Thu has the right to be in an election. He's the current president. But by November 1971, 80% of Americans in Gallup surveys want American troops home. Some want it with honor. Some have different ways that they say that. But almost all Americans want the troops home. Four, three, two, one. Here it is. 1972. Happy New Year to you all. And some have let out a whole mass of balloons. First time I've seen them. Don't know where they had them hidden, but there's dozens of them. And there go some more Roman candles. Another one zoomed up, arced into the new skies. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism. All while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. So you got to 1972, and... Everything seems a little bigger. The stakes are bigger. It's an election year. But something to note, draftees are down. Draftees being sent to Vietnam down to 500 a month. It was 8,000 a month at the end of 1971. 
Harder to scare up a protest in 1972. You're starting to see some of that energy fade. Some of it. They can still get, say, 100,000 in New York City in April and 25,000 in San Francisco. But they were getting 100,000 in San Francisco and 250,000 in D.C. the year before 1971. Seen a little bit less energy. They do an emergency march to stop the war in Washington and May of 1972, we get about 15,000 people. That's not to say the anti-war energy is gone. It's just you're noticing a bit of a wind down. It's an election year, as we imagine. It's Winston Lord said, Hanoi wasn't budging, so we decided to go public with the secret negotiations that Henry Kissinger and the Vietnamese were conducting. We were taking too much criticism in the U.S. to keep it secret. Nixon reveals this, and he reveals his offer of peace, including... Nixon's offer of U.S. withdrawal to the North Vietnamese. Some Americans who believe what the North Vietnamese tell them to believe have charged that the United States has not pursued negotiations intensely. Just the opposite is true, he says. He reveals Kissinger has made 12 trips to Paris. We offered withdrawal for a ceasefire and a prisoner of war exchange. The response And then they bring out what the North Vietnamese had said to them last time. They want us to overthrow South Vietnam. Richard Reeves describes it this way. It was a startling night for most Americans who had not heard of all of this. Hanoi denounces the speech as an election year gimmick. Nixon's plan is shocking even Democrats in Congress. McGovern, who's going to be his opponent in the fall, claims victory. He said Nixon adopted his plan. At the same time, he opposed our plan in Congress. He was offering the same thing to the North Vietnamese, McGovern says. That may be true, but it's bad news for McGovern, a Democrat seeking to sit in the place that Nixon is sitting in, because, as the Washington Post says in a headline, war issue deflated. It wasn't completely, but it certainly did take some of the stuffing out of the criticism. 1972 is also going to be when Nixon visits China. It's a tremendously successful visit. You start seeing poll numbers move up from 50% straight in the middle to 56 after this visit. He's also going to open up with the Soviets after this. The Soviets have been kind of dragging on a summit on arms control and definitely on helping with Vietnam. After Nixon goes to China, the Soviets are much more interested and there will be a summit meeting. Nixon's Russian breakthrough is almost as important for how his presidency should be viewed for the later end of the Cold War, for reducing tensions in the world generally, than even the Paris Peace Accords. So it's an achievement that's kind of buried in uh, with a lot of other stuff. In terms of the North Vietnamese, the answer to Nixon, if there is one, comes not at the negotiating table, but with an attack. The Easter offensive that is unusual as it is not the standard North Vietnamese guerrilla attack. It is up front, a total direct attack, tanks rolling across the DMZ zone, 15,000 North Vietnamese soldiers. Here's what Richard Reeves says in his uh, own... President Nixon alone in the White House. The South Vietnamese, the Americans, 
and the South Koreans. And it's important to note, in Vietnam, there were almost 40,000 South Korean troops in the province. We're surprised, not by the attack, that happened every spring, but by the fact that the North Vietnamese came as an army, not as guerrillas. They were out in the open, using hundreds of new Soviet T-54 tanks, rolling towards Quang Tri City, with a population of 35,000, which had been defended by a United States Infantry Division until the division was withdrawn in August 1971, and then south possibly Da Nang. It was a cloudy day already raining, so the South Vietnamese could not fly air support for their troops on the ground, and high-flying American B-52s could only bomb blind through the cover. Koreans, usually the bravest of soldiers, did not want to fight. What was the point? The Americans were already going home. Only 85,000 or so American troops remained in the South, and there were no large American combat units left in the country. By Easter Sunday, April 2nd, the North Vietnamese had taken half the province. At the same time, North Vietnamese were moving in the Central Highlands, and Viet Cong units were moving on old U.S. fire bases in the Mekong Delta near Saigon. The president was frantic, insisting the weather was good enough to fly, and accusing the Joint Chiefs of using the clouds as an excuse. On April 4th, he told Haldeman, The bastards have never been bombed like they're going to be bombed this time. Nixon writes in his diary, It is ironic that having come this far, our fate is really in the hands of the South Vietnamese. If we fail, it will be because the American way simply isn't as effective as the communist way in supporting countries abroad. I have a feeling that this may be the case. We give them the most modern arms. We emphasize the material to the exclusion of the spiritual and the Spartan life. And it may be that we soften them up rather than harden them for the battle. Interesting thoughts, and there is a lot of literature um, on, you know, between Johnson and certainly Kennedy before Johnson and Nixon on the futility of Vietnam, why we were even there. So you have the people leading the war and and ostensibly in political rhetoric being the strongest pro-war, both have a lot of secret commentary that they don't think this is really working. You know, I think it makes it very different than, say, a world war. Too. There's a compartmentalizing of the, the war effort, even uh, with the executives. And this is a diary comment, so we got to be clear about that, too. What a person writes in a diary is not there. You know, you could argue it's, it's of limited value. In April 6th, the weather began to clear and hundreds of United States planes, both Air Force and Navy fighter bombers, were in the air. They were targeting North Vietnamese surface-to-air missile installations along the DMZ and concentrations of North Vietnamese troops. Here's what Al Haig says. The Easter offensive looked pretty menacing. The North Vietnamese moved into Quang Tri, devastated big artillery bases up there, caused considerable mess. If you were sitting in Saigon at the time, your windows were rattling with B-52 strikes. But, Haig said, the effect could be overstated because it was repulsed by the South Vietnamese. And pacification or the state of politics, states of the contest within South Vietnam was not affected at all by the Eastern Offensive. In fact, after the offensive, the South Vietnamese felt there was no reason to etch out a deal. They had been attacked, and they had survived. Why quit? Here's Richard Reeves. The United States struck back on April 16th, bombing North Vietnam heavily and systematically for the first time 
since the spring of 1968. Waves of B-52s bombed the port city of Haiphong, while Navy F-14 fighter bombers strafe Hanoi. The principal targets were docks, warehouses, and oil depots, shipping points for the spring offensive. And four Soviet ships, Haiphong Harbor, were among those hit. Well, we really left them our calling card this weekend, the president says to Haldeman at Camp David that Sunday. They go to Camp David to cover for Kissinger, who is secretly meeting with the Soviets. And the one thing that they're going to get agreement on is there's going to be no future military shipments to North Vietnam. Russians have more interest in pursuing better negotiations with the U.S. than their friendship with North Vietnam. Nixon wants more from Kissinger. This is interesting. There's tension that continues between Nixon and his national security advisor, who's ostensibly achieving things for him. Kissinger was determined, this is Reeves, Kissinger was determined to duplicate the China success, which he saw as his own. The president was worried that the Soviets were setting him up. If the May summit was going to be canceled over Vietnam, he wanted to do the canceling rather than give Brezhnev that chance. The mistrust produced days of tense overlapping cables to and from Camp David, with Haig acting as the buffer between Nixon and Kissinger. Kissinger's first communication includes, Brezhnev wants a summit at almost any cost. He swears he knows nothing of Hanoi's offensive. Nixon says there to be no back down with Vietnam and tells Kissinger, you should be aware that the president has received results of a Sindlinger poll, which indicates his popularity has risen since the escalation of fighting in Vietnam. President Restless at Camp David, and has asked me to advise you that you must be in Camp David not later than 6 p.m. Washington time, Monday evening. Nixon and Kissinger now just start going back with these cables. Kissinger's like, you're, you're going to get a big arms control deal, and Nixon's like, I don't care. And it, It's, you know... Kind of par for the course with these two. And that's really right there, the action of 1972 when you look at it. We can get into the election and the and the gaming around the election, but it really comes down to the North Vietnamese have their big attack, the United States and South Vietnamese have their counterattack, and they push the and they beat back the invasion. It's on October 12th, 1972, that Kissinger strikes a deal with the North Vietnamese. They contact him. They want to meet again. Winston Lord says, We went over to Paris for this meeting in October 72, and we were given a present. Ceasefire in place, release of POWs, government of reconciliation. They dropped their political demand for Thu to in, uh, not be in power anymore in Saigon. It was the break we were looking for. They had dropped the political demand they were making for years. The terms are closer to these final peace accords. Both sides agree to resupply support only. North Vietnamese forces in the country can stay. They back down on a coalition government, but go for something called the government of national reconciliation, which the Americans are going to do their best to keep as meaningless as possible. Thu stays in for the time being. Border by arbitration internationally. Negotiation between the two countries. Kissinger's excited by the concession. So is his staff. He crosses six time zones which meant that he could deliver the news to Nixon technically on the same day that he etched the deal. When he does, Nixon loves it. You've gone three for three, sir, Kissinger tells Nixon, talking about good outcomes in China, Soviet Union, and Vietnam. It really is going to be true about 1972 that that's the case. And that's the reason Nixon gets a second term. 
You know, it was a little more events, but Nixon tells Henry, I'll sign just as long as South Vietnam agrees, as long as President Thieu signs. It's an agreement keeping in power. Thieu will sign, Kissinger says. Prepare for a ceasefire by October 30th. Everyone's excited. But it doesn't work out this way. On the 18th, Kissinger gets unexpected resistance, not from North Vietnam, but from South Vietnam. He hands him a letter from Nixon touting the benefits of the deal. It's the best we can do, Nixon says, to the South Vietnamese president, asking for cooperation. Here's what Winston Lord describes. When President Thieu heard our presentation, he didn't react. He just listened. We had no reason to be pessimistic after that initial meeting. But then three days later, we got bashed. He said he would never sign. He pointed out language in the agreement and said it was too weak. Now, Thieu's reacting, he probably got some of his advisors to the fact that this deal insists on leaving North Vietnamese troops in his country. South Vietnam looks like they call it the leopard because there's still these little bubbles that are re- pockets of Viet Cong control within the South Vietnam country. And the U.S. Army, especially with the drawdowns, is just using air power, is saying they're not going to get rid of them. They're going to be there. Thieu also asks for an actual border instead of continuing this demilitarized zone and just having the border negotiated between North and South Vietnam. He wants the border in this treaty. That's not something Hanoi can go with. Kissinger now sends a note. He was supposed to go to Hanoi to sign agreement. Now he has to send a note saying, literally now he's writing to the North Vietnamese, don't give up hope. We just need a small delay here. We have to get, we agree to the terms, but we have to get South Vietnam to agree to the term and we need more time. The North Vietnamese react badly to this, and they publicize the deal on Radio Hanoi, which means the entire world knows about the deal that the U.S. and the North Vietnamese made, but the South Vietnamese will not sign. They also accuse the U.S. of bad faith in negotiations, that this is some kind of game that they're doing. Peter Rodman, the assistant uh, defense secretary, says, it really didn't matter if we had it before or after the election. It made no difference at this point. When... Saigon balked. We said, fine. And we went home. We're going to wait till after the election. The White House at this point instructs Kissinger to say something public. Later, Nixon will claim he didn't authorize it, that it was too strong of a statement, but they did authorize him to say something about the state of negotiations. Despite what North Vietnam and South Vietnam had said, this is where Henry Kissinger goes out, makes his press conference and says, peace is at hand. Don't listen to what the North Vietnamese, South Vietnamese are saying. Peace is at hand. Nixon's press secretary, Charles Coulson, says the comments wiped McGovern out, Nixon's opponent. Nixon's just glad, and this is 1972 where things are early, not fully boiled up yet. But he wants to wipe out this two-bit Beltway insider scandal called Watergate. Get it off the newspapers, and for that day it does. Nixon gets over 60% of the popular vote in the 1972 election, every state save D.C. and Massachusetts. But peace isn't truly at hand. In a sense, Kissinger was wrong. And you have some interesting dynamics. Here's what Henry Kissinger says much later. He believes that from the North Vietnamese point of view, they had to get a deal before the election. And they set their own timetable that way. And that's why it was wait, wait, wait until we got to the election. They realized Nixon was going to beat McGovern. They were going to get less from a President Nixon in the second term. 
But as Kissinger said, they had no idea because they didn't know enough about American politics to know that what was coming was a big supplemental vote in order to continue the war. And there wasn't support in Congress. We caught the North Vietnamese in a wrong assessment of our situation. They thought our situation would be better after the elections. It would be worse. We would have been under pressure to pull back the B-52s. The North Vietnamese found out later we couldn't escalate. We would lose the opportunity to negotiate at all. But with South Vietnam not signing the agreement, nothing can be done right after the election even. Nixon does one more thing. He conducts bombings on Christmas in 1972, hitting North Vietnamese targets, being sure to hit docks, oil depots, things that would hurt. And it's kind of an interesting thing that happens. They get a conciliatory note from Hanoi after this, suggesting that maybe negotiations should be resumed. Yeah, the end game of Vietnam really comes down to the U.S. and South Vietnam. Here's what Charles Whitehouse, Ambassador to Laos, says. They were, and this is the, about the South Vietnamese, they were confident that 68 would be repeated. They liked the way it was. They liked the deal they had. They reasoned that it was better for them to wait. The longer, the better. Senator Barry Goldwater, the staunch conservative, hearing about what South Vietnam's doing, food dragging his feet, says if Thu keeps doing this, to hell with them. Nixon makes sure that his ambassador shows that note to Thu and South Vietnam. They get a copy. This is a major conservative voice in America saying, leave South Vietnam at the table. Nixon backs it up with a letter for Al Haig to deliver. Al Haig is like the last one remaining in the administration that's kind of taking the uh, side of South Vietnam. So they send him. Thu ends up yelling at him, makes him wait four hours and then yells at him. Nixon says the air attack was a warning. There could be more if the North doesn't enforce the treaty that we make. He also tells Thu, you resisting this signing of this treaty is helping Hanoi, not helping you. Finally, an ultimatum. Failure to join a settlement would mean no U.S. support. Thu doesn't cave. Any agreement he sees is his country being reduced. He then replies to Nixon's written note, attacking his ultimatum. He knows it's the only weapon he has. He can deny Nixon the peace with honor. He can say this isn't honorable. Kissinger's done. From Kissinger's point of view, it seems to leave us no other alternative than to go alone. Nixon also blames Henry a bit. The South Vietnamese think he's weak because of the press conferences. The damn peace at hand thing. A statement Nixon had kind of had him make and helped Nixon win, but let's put that aside. Now when Hanoi agrees to resume talks, Nixon announces a bombing halt on July 8th. Winston Lord's opinion is, it moved very quickly once the peace process started in Paris again. Eventually, toasts were exchanged and, and toasts were exchanged and there was a feeling of camaraderie all around. Eventually, South Vietnam uh, has to come along. It's reluctant. There really is no choice. They would be abandoned. It was made fairly clear they would be abandoned. There is um, promises made to support and force the deal. I think it's important to note that one of the things that's going to happen, this doesn't get talked about much, but is that Kissinger and Le Duc Tho is are going to make are going to have several meetings after the peace Paris Peace Accords are signed to talk about enforcing the deal. From Kissinger's point of view, it's it's Watergate. 
and the heat up of Watergate in April and May 1973 that blows everything up and reduces the president's ability to start commanding a military uh, operation as the North Vietnamese start violating some terms of of the ceasefire. That's what gets them to Saigon so quickly in 1975. Uh, and that's one way to look at it. That's the Kissinger-Nixon point of view. Ford's going to adopt that view when he becomes president. I would love to do something to help South Vietnam, but Congress won't let me. On the other hand, those type of politics were pretty easy to read, and I don't think an extended military operation will be tolerated as you get into 73 and we already had a peace agreement. Okay, my main point in the podcast is to clarify the Paris Peace Accords, what happened, how they came about, as my last cast was on this topic, was on how do you end a war in 2006. But obviously, then and now, the point was, is it, as one admiral said, a kind of sham peace, a peace that was etched knowing that a collapse of this country, South Vietnam, was coming? The, the troops left in North Vietnam seems to be the greatest evidence of this. You have a deal which leaves enemy troops in the territory, the pockets, the leopards, the leopard spots. Possibly different strategies would have gotten a deal earlier. Here's Peter Rodman, Assistant Defense Secretary. When President Nixon came to office, I think our options in Vietnam were already clear. The only issue was how we were going to get out. The decision to disengage had already been made by the American people would say a re-elected Johnson had secured a peace better than a newly elected Nixon. Yes, I think it's possible. Obviously, that's what the North Vietnamese feared about 1973, according to Henry Kissinger. Johnson wanted peace with honor, but wasn't as tied to the rhetoric in a political campaign that way. He didn't have to show off he a different type of policy approach for four years, try something new, could have just continued the process, combinations of bombing and bombing halts as carrots and sticks. But more importantly, Hanoi would know that they were dealing not with a new guy, but with the same leader still in charge. But here's what Lyndon Johnson does not get you. He does not necessarily get you China. I think it would be difficult for him to make such a reach out. Nor the Soviets necessarily in a two-term, but he did want to reach out to the Soviets. He even went out to Soviet meeting during the transition period. So you don't know what he might have gotten there. Well, there would be an additional 20,000 casualties in Vietnam during President Nixon's term, and the war would be made a two-party war. Was the entire Nixon presidency just a stall-out for a peace with honor that really came to be essentially what Kissinger had warned against in his foreign affairs article in the beginning of the Nixon presidency? Don't do a deal that's even inadvertently a withdrawal that's going to lead to the collapse of the country. It seems that any reasonable person, it seems to me that any reasonable person would look at a deal where there's 100,000 soldiers of the enemy left in a country and say, this is a deal that's really just allowing you to get out. But I did want to explore it in more detail. And, you know, anytime you do look at something in more detail, you see some more possibilities. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. If you haven't left an Apple podcast review for us yet, please do. We're part of Airwave Media Podcast. Go to airwavemedia.com for some great other podcasts. Thanks for listening.